1: Hello, I'm Nathan Smith, a host for the New Books Network. I have the pleasure today to speak with Gary Tomlinson, Sterling Professor of Music and the Humanities at Yale University, about his book, The Machines of Evolution and Scope of Meaning, which was published by Zone Books earlier this year. I should note that this interview is a first for me in some respects. Normally, I'm sitting behind a computer talking remotely with an author that I've never met. Today, I'm speaking with someone in whom's, in whose office... I was sitting just two days ago. Um, and what's more, we are kind of co-teaching, uh, or I am his TA for an opera and philosophy class this semester. Um, and in addition to TAing for him this semester, I've had the pleasure of having Gary as an instructor and mentor over the past three and a half years, ranging from nerding out over sci-fi in a meeting ostensibly about my term paper on Willem Flusser to correcting crossed etymologies during my prospectus defense. So, uh, I am very pleased to be able to give back a little bit in providing a platform for his most recent work here today. Um, So to steal a few good words from the inside flap, what is meaning? How does it arise? Where is it found in the world? In recent years, philosophers and scientists have answered these questions in different ways. Some see meaning as a uniquely human achievement, Others extend it to trees, microbes, and even to the bonding of DNA and RNA molecules. In this groundbreaking work, Gary Tomlinson defines a middle path. Combining emerging thinking about evolution, new research on animal behaviors, and theories of information and signs, he tracks meaning far out into the animal world. At the same time, he discerns limits to its scope and identifies innumerable life forms uh and and including many animals and all other organisms that make no meaning at all tomlinson's map of meaning starts from signs the fundamental unit of reference or aboutness where signs are at work they shape meaning laden lifeways offering possibilities for distinctive organism niche uh, interactions and sometimes leading to technology and culture the emergence of meaning does not however monopolize complexity in the living world. Countless organisms generate awe-inspiring behavioral intricacies without meaning. The machines of evolution in the scope of meaning offers a revaluation of both meaning and meaninglessness, uncovering a foundational difference in animal solutions to the hard problem of life. And with that, Gary Tomlinson, welcome.
0: Thank you, Nathan. It's a pleasure to pleasure to be here with you, and a pleasure to to uh, record
1: this for the New Books Network. Thank you very much for doing this. Of course, no, it was my, it was my pleasure. As we've talked over the past few uh, the few weeks, uh, I've really I really enjoyed the book, and I'm happy to be able to share it. So, um, so uh, this book is in some ways the third book of a trilogy um, that you've been working on that focuses on, focuses on the intersection of for lack of a better word, culture and uh, evolutionary biology, kind of bridging things from both of those uh, domains. Um, Could you briefly introduce us to the larger project this book grew out of? Sure.
0: Um, uh, Of course, my starting point is as a musicologist. um, uh, But uh, well, well over a decade ago, I, I began working on the problem of the origins of human music making capacities. Um, uh, That resulted in a book um, uh, from 2015, A Million Years of Music, The Emergence of Human Modernity was the subtitle of that. A Million Years of Music, The Emergence of Human Modernity. That subtitle signifies some of the Large stakes that I saw uh, in um, in questions of human musicking um, uh, that that uh, that stand alongside the emergence of human language um, that that uh, that relate in all kinds of interesting ways with uh, with ancient. Uh, technologies, uh, technologies that go back well before there, there was any such thing as homo sapiens, uh, but in, in, in our earlier ancestors. And um, so there are all kinds of issues that were involved in that. And that led me to a second book of 2018 called Culture and the Course of Human Evolution. Now this book Open wide uh, there's not all that much on music in the second of these books um, uh, it is uh, it is about culture in general, as you say, for lack of a better word um uh, and we can talk about how I define culture if it if it seems warranted later on in this in this conversation but um It'll come uh, up. Yeah, the um uh, the the second book then uh, took on. The last oh, I don't know, two hundred and fifty thousand years or so of of uh, of hominin evolution and and sapient that is Homo sapiens evolution um, and tried to understand the the mechanisms by which biology and culture were intertwined across that whole that whole stretch, um, uh, and it defined I think it it tried to define some some slightly. Different ways of understanding that biocultural mix than we, um, than we, than we often hear from evolutionary biologists who try to take on the notion of culture, um, uh, or from humanists who try and take on the notion of evolution without perhaps digging as deeply as they might um, uh, into the science. Uh, in any case, that set me on a, a, a track that 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 led. Towards both of those books, I should say, and this is something that I'm sure, Nathan, you're going to ask me about later on. Both of those books had to do with the theory of signs, that is to say, semiotics, the theory of semiosis um, uh, and uh, and the theory that the, the, the making of signs and the function of signs in the making of culture and the making of music and the making of language and so on and so forth. Uh, the, the, the place of signs was for me a tremendously important thing. Um, uh, the what that led me to was the, the 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 question of how widespread sign making, which is to say, semiosis, which is to say, is something that has to do with the creation of meaning, how widespread it is beyond humans in the world today, and, and how the evolution how how the evolution of that widespread uh, uh, dispersion of sign making came about, and so that's how I ended up in the, in uh, where I am in this in this present book.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. We're going to be spending quite a bit of time talking about signs, and it was—I uh, I, just as like an aside—it it, was—it was interesting to see. I, I during my coursework, I was able to take two classes with Paul uh, who you who is someone you're in dialogue with, and you want to you, like you're, you're building upon, but also trying to like limit it. And yeah, no, it's it's interesting uh, with the same like in his class, uh, how much. Like how invigorating, how far he could stretch, um, in, you know, in his case and in yours, Percy and semiotics. Um, so it's interesting, or it, I find it very productive to also go as, you know, in, in your book, trying to like put a little bit of a limit on that, um, or just trying to be more more precise on what we're trying to say when we call something a sign or call something meaning. It, like I found the two having interacted with Paul and like really enjoying that the, the, the power that his, his approach would bring, but to also talk about how, like, I don't know, there's still boundaries that, that to, to be made and making, uh, you know, there's some, there's some damages that can be made in just trying to make this type of universal equivalence of uh, semiosis. So right. Right. yeah, it, right. was, it was
0: fantastic. Yeah. So this is Paul Paul Cockleman you're talking about in anthropology here. Yeah. Yes, yes. indeed. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He had I I took his uh, oh matter uh, matter and materiality or meaning and materiality course and then his uh, uh, it was the one that ended up being the book the age of interpretation or interpretation in the age of computation.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's
1: like uh, mm-hmm. yeah. very good. Yeah. 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 Okay, but that that actually kind of leads me a little bit to uh, um, to my next question. So this work is striking out something of a middle ground in discussions of semiosis. At one extreme, we have a hard anthropocentric position that localizes meaning only in humans. Um, And I'll note that that view has a very long history and has been critiqued and deconstructed many, many times. And as a result, the other extreme often mobilizes the lack of any firm division in meaning, in meaning-making creatures, I should say, or, or processes, in calling for various forms of near-universal semiosis, in which things like, to pick a a, a wild example, rocks being eroded by water can be seen as meaningful. So in some sense, we have Goldilocks and the Three Bears situation. On the one side, it's too limited. On the other side, too broad. And this book is trying to find... Uh, a definition that is just right for our you know, uh, present purposes. Um, so to, to unpack this position, um, can we start with the three conceptual streams that you uh, introduce in the preface? Um, mainly, uh to briefly characterize them, um, the distinction between information and meaning. Uh, two, how that distinction intersects with the larger biospheric commons. And then three, the post-structurally tinged extended evolutionary synthesis. Um, discourse that you're working with them. Okay. Um,
0: uh, the question then has to do with with information and and what kinds of information there are. The fund the fundamental step that I take at the beginning of this book is to divide information across in, into two sorts of information. One is the kind of colloquial way in which we think about information. Um, uh, it is it has to do with meaningfulness. It has to do with aboutness. Um, for my, From my semiotic vantage point, it has to do with signs that point well, one thing towards another as somehow being about that other thing. Um, uh, it has to do with Reference referring one thing referring to another. It has to do with um, uh, with representation. One thing representing another um, uh, in some fashion. All of that has to do with my semiotic side of information. However, there is a hugely broader realm of information within which that kind of semiotic aboutness information exists. And that hugely broader realm was only defined really in the in the middle of the 20th century. Um, and I want to read. Um, uh, I want to read just just uh, 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 the. the The first two definitions of information from Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Um, uh, The first of them is knowledge obtained from investigation, study, or instruction. And there are a couple of words, synonyms that are uh, given here, intelligence, news, facts, data. All right. That's the colloquial, the notion of knowledge obtained from some sort of something coming to us is the colloquial use of the, inf- of, of the word information. We all know it that way, the information we get in a newspaper, for example. But here's the second one, and it's very mysterious when you start thinking about it. The attribute inherent in and communicated by one of two or more alternative sequences or arrangements of something. That produce specific effects, one of two or more alternative sequences or arrangements of something that produce specific effects. Now, anybody who has thought about computation and who has thought about um, uh, uh, how information is defined in bits on a computer and so on realizes that this second definition has something to do with the invention of computation in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, and indeed, um If you go back to Merriam-Webster's dictionary of, say, 1913, which I did uh, uh, at some point, and uh, you don't find anything like that second definition of information. It simply didn't exist at the beginning of the 20th century. It's a product of the information age, as we would say, but that is to say the computation age. But what's interesting about, about this second definition is the two examples that are given in that in in it the attribute inherent in or communicated by one or two or uh, one of two or more alternative sequences or arrangements of something parenthesis such as nucleotides in dna or binary digits in a computer program end of parenthesis that produce specific effects so here you have here you have a kind of information that can be broad enough to take in Um, sequences of nucleotides on a DNA molecule, or indeed sequences of zeros and ones in a a computer program. Uh, But what is crucial about it is the notion of combinatoriality. That is to say, you've got certain uh, sequences of whatever length that are made from limited numbers of tokens, zeros and ones in the case of a binary computer program, um, uh, for nucleotides in the case of DNA. Now, you can combine them into longer or shorter sequences. So you get an almost infinite possibility in, in in terms of numbers of sequences that are available. Um, But nonetheless, it has to do with the, the combinatorial arrangements that that, as the definition says, produce specific effects. So here is a causal definition of information, right? It is a definition of information that, that doesn't has nothing. It has to do with efficacy in the world, whether DNA molecules uh, transcribing onto RNA or, or, or com- computers and everything in between, but it doesn't have to do with meaning in the world. Causality, efficacy, but not meaning. Now, this is my fundamental wager, that we need to make this distinction between causal information on the one hand, Shannon information, as it is sometimes called after Claude Shannon, the great uh, definer, mathematical definer of, 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 of its measurement. It has to do with causal information on the one hand and meaningful information as a subset of causal information that somehow comes about in certain parts of our world. That's the first distinction. That's crucial. Okay. The, 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 uh, you know, the, the second and third distinctions are are, are less crucial. Um, the second and third streams, but but they are not unimportant. Certainly, the third stream has to do with the openness of systems, and the openness of systems, all biological systems to the, their environments, is absolutely crucial for my account. Which is to say that that in order for us to understand. Meaning and, and under, in order for us to understand how this other kind of information meaningful information comes about in certain biological systems in their interactions with the environment, we need to understand the mediation between the the, 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 the organisms themselves and what is outside them. Uh, we need to understand the effects going back and forth, in other words, not just from the genome out to a phenotype, to then the environment, but from the environment right back into the genome, changing the expression of the genome on a moment-to-moment basis. Um, that openness is absolutely crucial. And you'll note that I said it changes the expression of the genome on a moment-to-moment basis. I am not suggesting that, that the environment changes on a moment-to-moment basis the sequence of nucleotides in each of our DNA. What it does is it changes the regulatory mechanisms by which certain genes are expressed or not expressed, the ways in which they're expressed, adjusting at every moment the nature of the genetic expression of the organism towards the world. Um, and it, somehow in that mediation, then, is where, is where the second, in certain kinds of organisms in that mediation, and this, of course, is what the book is about, is how that second, is how meaningful information comes about.
1: All right, I've talked on and on. Go ahead. (laughs) No, I was just going to say, like, in your term, like, even I just want to, like, note that your use of the term expression of genotypes, is it it the genotypic expression that is the phenotype? I'm, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm rusty on my evolutionary biology here. <laughs> well, what, what the, the traits or the character of, of the organism that faces yeah. the environment is
0: the phenotype. Yes, yeah. it's the phenotype. Yeah. Right.
1: And, and your use of the word expression, the actual point I wanted to make is not, that is not expression in the sense of meaning, correct? Nope, not, not at all. Yeah, that's, no, no, that's, no. That is exactly, uh, I just want to note that that, that's an informational connection where the coupling of organism to environment is, um, registering kind of this openness to uh, and this this nexus between the two of them, but that is not necessarily to say that that's a meaningful uh, uh, the, the expression itself is not is an information. No, 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 no indeed, no, 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 indeed, and and you
0: know uh, when when biologists talk about gene expression, they're talking they're talking about um, uh, the the environment facing nature of the organism that comes about because of genetic controls. That's all, right? So that would be, that would be in my book, um, uh, a kind of, uh, a kind of causal information, not yet meaningful information. Now, you know, one of the problems that comes, one of the, one of the reasons that I wrote this book is because there, there is a whole field out there called biosemiotics that is about precisely, um, uh, the role of signs in life. Um, uh, and this is uh, this is one of the uh, one of the uh, areas where, in fact, the notion of meaningful information has been extended the widest. And and indeed, uh, indeed, most biosemioticians would argue that that even something like the bonding of two molecules, the DNA and RNA molecules, in the in in the beginning of a transcriptive sort of sequence that would result in some sort of phenotypic. Uh, character, they would suggest that that already is meaningful. Um, now, we can define terms however we want to define terms. And if we want to define meaning, we can do that um, in in so broad a way we can do that. However, um, certain kinds of definitions of our terms are productive and other kinds of definitions are, it seems to be, less productive. Uh, and And so, you know, my definition of meaning then circles back towards something that, that certain kinds of organisms do in facing the world, whereby one thing comes somehow to represent or refer to another thing. And when we start talking about one thing referring to another thing, we are talking about exactly a sign. Not, we're not talking about a signal. But there, there are all these words that one needs to be careful about, and I spend a good deal of time at the beginning of the book defining some of them. Um, a signal could be a chemical signal that simply, you know, that latches on to the end of a neuron and causes, neuro, uh, causes an electric transmission um, that, that changes an organism in some way. Um, signals are everywhere, see, and they are causal information, most of them. Uh, but, but when something different happens, when, when there is some sort of perception on the part of an organism that is making one thing out there in the world refer to another thing, then we've got a true sign. That's something different from a signal.
1: Yeah, no, and just uh, like, we're going to come back to that in just one second. But just uh, for our listeners going forward, like I I earlier used the the description of like a rock being eroded by water as being meaningful in this kind of like extended meaning sphere. And basically, in some sense, what your book is trying to say is there is... Uh, there's there's something it's not to like degrade the fact or to say like oh the rock being eroded by water what a you know what a meaningless thing they can't even use language it's to it's to draw a distinction between like that type of informational process and the meaningful process that i can have observing a rock being eroded by water and the types of things i can do with that, I can use that as an example right here, and like that that is something different than the actual rock being eroded right so that that would be the causal information side versus uh, me reading into that something, seeing it as a a sign of um, you know whatever, you know, like, oh, it's a sign from, it could be a sign from God. It could be a sign of, you know, climate change. It could be whatever that on my side, that's meaningful. That's my engagement. And I am using meaning in making that engagement with what right. is a causal process in the world. Right. And, for me, and, one, of the,
0: one, of, and one of the things that is important in, in what you just brought up is, is that I am not at all, at all, arguing that. The case of meaningful information is complex and rich. And the case of meaningless information, that is to say, information causal without meaning, is not complex and rich. In fact, the miracle of life forms, as far as I'm concerned, is is the informational complexity of all Mm. of them, every one of them, down to the simplest microbes. There is there are immense immensities of, of information processing, causal information processing going on in those organisms as they as they adjust themselves in their open relationship to the environment around them, this is extraordinary. And, and it is the hard problem of life to figure out how such a thing could have come about in the first place. But then on top of that, on top, every organism then, every organism in the world is filled with causal information meaningless causal information of immense complexity on top of it some few organisms in the world create signs and they create and they create meaningful information referential information of the sort you were just describing as you think about a rock being eroded
1: yeah yeah no and it's and it's yeah there's kind of like this like cruel cool double-edged sword of like often when people are trying to like extend meaning in this way and being like oh the world is meaningful like often the intentions are good but in some sense as it just like pulls something out of what you just said it's almost like why it, you're kind of like hitting on this idea of like why is it that meaning is equated with uh complexity versus information as like inferior right and you're trying to say like that It's in like, even if your impulse to extend meaning, uh, to, to all animals or even to rocks, whatever it may be, your intention might be good. It might be, uh, motivated by a per, uh, political stance or an ethical stance. However, it still belies this kind of like this tricky thing where it's like, why, why is the word meaning still, uh, signifying, um, or like it's hypertext is that it's complex. Therefore it's good. Right. Whereas like it, you know, just saying something's meaningful, Like you, you can say that there's complexity and that there's beauty and it's, it's, you know, all this other stuff. However, uh, there's a, there's a weird, you know, kind of like a a historical weight with the word meaning that, you know, it, it can carry over and have some negative consequences that you kind of unpack of, especially in the honeybees where it's almost, there's some sense where you're, in some sense, you're doing a disservice to the complexity in just being like, Oh, it's just like meaning. It's just like us. Like it doesn't preserve, it doesn't preserve the the otherness in this process. Exactly. And you know, and the, the, the two, the two crucial, so, so
0: you brought up honeybees and, and, and there are long chapters or long sections of the book on honeybees on the one hand and songbirds on the other hand. And the reason that I took those two examples on is because number one, They are hugely studied in advanced science that takes us right, tracks us right down to the molecular level in terms of in terms of what songbirds are doing with their songs and what honeybees are doing in their hives um, and outside of their hives. Um, So the science, the science is hugely well developed, number one. And number two, the science, it seems to me, points in different directions. It points, in the case of honeybees, towards advanced, immense, almost incomprehensible complexity of social interaction that has no signs in it. It is completely meaningless in that sense. It is governed by other kinds of complexity, causal complexity. And on the other hand, songbirds that have all of that kind of under under uh, under uh, foundation of uh, of causal information and on top of it are creating signs to one another in what they do with their songs. So that's why those two examples figure so largely in the book. Yeah. Uh, you know by the way, by the way, Nathan, I, when I was once you take on and you you said you said at the very beginning that, that, that the book is about a Goldilocks finding a Goldilocks spot, it exactly is about finding that Goldilocks spot. I don't of course think that I have traced the whole border between <laughs> it would be crazy between meaningfulness, meaningful information and meaningless informational complexity. I don't think I've traced that border but um, what I needed to do was plot out, a contrast of, 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 of animals on two sides of that border. And that's where the songbirds and honeybees come in.
1: Right, right. No. And yeah, it's, it's, you know, this isn't a book that's, you know, looking for the missing link between these two things either. You're, you you know, like you, you, carefully balance that where you're like, this is a, this is a meaningful distinction um, for us as people, researchers, you know, uh, subjects in the world, creatures that create meaning, um, but are also filled with informational processes. This is an important distinction to make. However, it doesn't necessarily, oh, I, I lost the beginning of that thought. Um, oh no. Uh, but you know, like you're, you're making this exact, like it's a meaningful distinction. How, this was it, but it's not, it, it, it's less important about finding the missing link or the exact boundary. Right, right. And indeed, to, and, indeed, and
0: indeed, by the way, to trace the exact boundary would be to to somehow come to a, a deeply wrought body of scientific information about almost every species of animal there is out there. And that would be clearly beyond my capacities, beyond anybody's capacities, I would think. Yeah. Tim. All
1: right. Well, uh, just uh, we've been tossing around a lot of terms and having uh, um, a discussion, I just want to like quickly define just a couple to kind of uh, help our listeners follow along so the first person, portion of the text is you um as you just talked about outlined some of these key concepts um, so can you just briefly talk about and you already kind of have um, and, and perhaps you might just want to reiterate what is a sign you know you're drawing on Percy and semiotics so but like what what is this sign and and what is the aboutness that helps? makes make this distinction between informative causality and meaningfulness yes okay
0: um so the so the persian notion of a sign is a three part notion um uh it is not just a relationship of a sign to an object um that's crucial there is something something out there in the world i'll come back to that out there in a moment there's something out there in the world that that Uh, That somehow comes to be related in some part of itself to something else out there in the world. And in that relationship, it comes to refer somehow to that something else. So the the first thing then that refers can be called the sign, the second or the sign vehicle was Peirce's term for it. Charles Sanders Peirce, late 19th century, early 20th century philosopher of signs and many other things. Um, uh, uh, The sign vehicle is that which refers to something else. The the something else referred to can be thought of as the object. However, there is a third part, and the third part is for Peirce absolutely, absolutely crucial, and he called it the interpretant. Now, this word suggests a whole lot of interpretation in a very human kind of fashion, but Peirce didn't quite mean it that way. Uh, what he meant by interpretant was he, well, let me put it this way. Sometimes he meant it in a very human interpreting sort of way, but he didn't always mean it that way. And what he really, what he was trying to grasp by interpretant was some set of capacities on the part of some perceiving organism that looks out there in the world and is somehow is somehow embroiled in the world in such a way that that relationship of sign vehicle to object comes about. It's almost like a calling of the organism to kind of make the relationship, but it also depends crucially on the capacities of the organism that enables it to make such a relationship, right? So that's the interpretant, then you you have a triangular kind of uh, kind of relationship in this sign uh, in which the interpretant is is enabling. Uh, is is well. Let me put it this way, as I do in the book. You have you have the relation between sign, vehicle, and object. Think of a line connecting them. There is a line from the interpretant that intersects with that line in the middle of it, and and is enabling somehow that relationship. So, the the interpretant line intersecting with the line between sign and object is uh, is is essentially making a meta relation to the relation of sign and object. Well, it all gets very complicated, and Peirce never, uh, never described his signs and interpretants and objects without it becoming complicated. But but what is but but what stands at the root of it is somehow we if we are going to define going to define semiosis and its breadth in the world, we need to come to grips with what kind of evolved capacities in what kind of organisms
1: have the wherewithal to make
0: that relationship of. Sign
1: vehicle to object, right? Right? No, that's fantastic. And we'll 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 come back to that kind of question of like, what are some of these conditions of possibility for making meta uh, uh, aboutness laden meta relations? Because um, you spend a little bit of time in that last or in talking about abstract machines. Um, so we'll come back to that in just one second. So I want to. So that's kind of like the second half of your title. I wanna just quickly define the first the first half of the title, um, machines. So you're you're working with the notion of abstract machines that's um, perhaps, a, you know, well, Deleuze and Guattari picked it up from information theory, actually, and, and computer science that they then generalized and then Manuel DeLanda picked up Deleuze's notion and then he generalized it. So you're you're kind of picking up aspects of that. So could you quickly just talk about what an abstract machine is? Right. Yeah. So an abstract were- machine. This, this it seems to me, is a tremendously rich notion.
0: The way Deleuze and Guattari do, do uh, 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 work with it um, here and there throughout their huge book, A Thousand Plateaus. um, Manuel de Landa then takes it on in in especially, I think, the most compelling account he has of abstract machines is in a book um, from the late 1990s called A Thousand Years of Nonlinear History, um, which is a book about European history in a way, and it's strange that it would come there, but it it does come there. He does does define them in other places as well. Um, So an abstract machine, think of a set of conditions under which a process is set in motion, period. Think of it again, a set of conditions that make a process start. Um, Here's a set of conditions that make a process start. Um, Organisms reproduce. They reproduce with variation in the reproduction because there's no such thing as absolutely faithful uh, reproduction. That results in different variants of these organisms those different variants use the resources of the of the environment in slightly or greatly different ways from one another. Some of them gaining greater advantage, and others less advantage in the use of those resources. Uh, so let me step back again. This is, I'm, 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 of course, what I'm coming to is Darwin's natural selection, a, a fundamental insight into an abstract machine that has governed ev- the evolution of life on Earth and probably everywhere else it has come up. Uh, many biologists think. Um, Uh, But in any case, um, uh, again, you've got organisms that vary, varied relationships to the environment, some advantage, more advantage and less advantage in in the environment from one variety to another. Natural selection happens, right? Natural selection is not anything doing any selecting. It is not, um, uh, you know, there is no, there is no, there is no. There is no material machine that is driving natural selection. It's just a set of conditions in the material world under which this abstract machine takes off. So that's the first. That's the first of the four abstract machines that I lay out in 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 my, my the evolutionary part of this book. Um, this these are not new insights of mine. Obviously, this the natural selection is at the heart of all evolutionary thought. I would say even the even some evolutionary thought that sort of says well that wants to qualify it. Um, so then, uh, you know, so we were trying, we were talking about abstract machines. I go, I go back. An abstract machine once more is a set of conditions that, that bring about that set in motion, a process, nothing yep. more than that.
1: Yep. And yeah, maybe and, and I'll stop and let you, and let you go from there. No, yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. I mean, cause this is, this can be, this is often kind of a, you know, kind of a, a mystifying concept for many people. And it seems to uh, it is the source of a lot of very interesting interpretations of, you know, Deleuze and Guattari's work, which you, you know, I'm interested in for, for different reasons. Um, but I like an important thing to like that you're kind of drawing out here is this, it's not, it's abstract. So it's not material. It's not, you know, a, a causal thing in the world that is pushing it. It's not something that is transcendent, you know. There's no godlike figure that is doing the action. So it's an imminent, immaterial process that, given a certain disposition of conditions, kind of unfolds in similar ways. And so, like part of the 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 beauty of this idea is that you can encompass something like, um, what, what is it? Uh, um, I, I the the uh, Darwin's uh. Darwin's machine, I think you call it, what is it, uh, re- reproduction with variance or? Reproduction with variance, a varied relation to the environment. Yes, indeed. Right. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> so, and like, which that obviously encompasses many, 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 many different types of things. You know, like, you're not like part of its abstraction is that it allows, like, oh, these are, there is something similar going on between everything, you know, any type of living organism that reproduces with variation. So this is something that we, I have in common. We we both have dogs uh, that we have in common with dogs, um, birds, any, all of animal life and and perhaps all of, you know, just like the, the the biosphere uh, in general might have this type of thing to varying degrees. Right. So the abstract machine is just a way of trying to hit on this process that is immaterial and imminent, that is kind of underwriting a lot of these, uh, uh, but,
0: but keep in mind but keep in mind Nathan that's right but keep in mind that that um, that the abstract machine is we can think of it as, something that we are describing so as to get at these processes. And it is that, um, but of course the, what is, what is you said before that it is imminent. It is imminent to matter. It is imminent to kind of, to kind of arrangements of matter and energy that set about these processes. Right. And indeed, and indeed, uh, you don't have to have humans around in order for there to be an abstract machine of natural selection. You just have to have humans around to describe it conceptually. Right. <laughs> it was it was there. It was there
1: from the moment that life began on earth. In other words. Right. right, Yeah. No. And in some sense, no, and that's kind of funny that you bring that up. Cause yeah, I kind of the ease with which I talked about something that perhaps the, it's not, it's, it's, it's hairy to call it causal, but it's almost, it's, it would be more on the side of, informative it is something it is not necessarily an aboutness and that's part of its imminent, imminence you know the the aboutness of meaning which i was kind of describing it as is this is something that we can use to describe i've already reinscribed a, a certain degree of transcendence as you're kind of pointing out right which is which is I'm making it about in a certain sense. So yeah, the, and the abstract machine isn't, obviously it's not necessarily coextensive with causal information or informative things. It's, it's more abstract than that as well. Um, so, yeah, no, yeah, that's good. that's so, good.
0: Um, so if we, if we were to think of other examples that uh, again, here's, here's the first of, of the four abstract machines that I want to describe. Um, uh, uh, the first three of them are, it seems to me, the result of, a century and a half of 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 Darwinian and post-Darwinian and neo-Darwinian evolutionary thinking. Uh, the first of them again: um, organisms reproduce with vari- with vari- uh, with with variation. Um, they reproduce in in uh, in in their variation. They have. D- different uses of the resources of the environment around them, some more advantageous than others. As a result, there is natural selection. Here's a second abstract machine. It's, this is the abstract machine of niche construction. And now we're talking about an organism that is inter, is working is interacting with its environment, using resources from its environment, and hence changing its environment so the abstract machine that that uh that arises here is uh, has a condition in which in which resources in any environment are limited uh organisms use resources in using those resources they change the environment and so they are now living across generations in differing environments that are then going to change natural selection so that's piled this new uh, abstract machine of niche construction a feedback between changed, organi- changed organisms and changed environments is going to be piled right on top of the natural selection uh, uh, abstract machine. And the third one is has to do with, with the complex uh, f- feedback loops of the regulatory mechanisms from the genome out to the environment and from the environment back into the genome. We've already talked a little bit about those. Um, so those are three Three abstract machines. that the, the, the called them the the natural selection machine, the niche construction machine, and the regulatory mediation machine. If you want to call it that, uh, three abstract machines that evolutionists have described in rich ways, especially in recent decades. And 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 they don't always think of them as abstract machines. I think maybe they should. Um, but then. Then there's the fourth. And the fourth abstract machine for me is exactly the semiotic machine. Um, Now, this is the importance of semiosis for me as something that came about at some point in the history of life on Earth among certain organisms and not other organisms. Um, The importance of this is because, uh, well, the reason that it could be an abstract machine is, is that if you think of it in terms of certain kinds of evolved capacities which once they fall into place, sign making happens, then you can then you can begin to conceive of semiosis as indeed, um, uh, as signs themselves as the result of another abstract design, abstract
1: machine of the sort we've been talking about. And um, it's given to us, you know, and to contrast that, it's not something graced upon humans in in this way from a transcendent world it's something that emerges out of these processes that are exactly Exactly. it emerge it emerges out
0: of certain kinds of capacities that only certain kinds of animals have and i go on, on at some length trying to trying to describe what these capacities are they they clearly are associated um with uh uh with very complex neural networks. Um, uh, that is, 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 is. It seems clear to 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 me. Um, uh, they have to do with things like uh, a capacity for uh, attention, um, uh, attention, meaning, the ability to focus on certain information coming from the, coming from the world, uh, stimuli coming from the world and, and not focus on others. So differentially to kind of make sense in, in some sort of neural net, uh, network of, of certain, certain, uh, input and not other input, um, that would be an attention and, and attention comes in different, uh, the, the, the scientists who study attention are, are, Working hard to to define exactly how different complex and different degrees of complexity of attentive discrimination comes about um, in different kinds of organisms. Um, the the on top of that would be learning and memory, uh, but certain kinds of learning and memory. And the most important thing for making signs, it seems to me, has to do with something that 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 people call episodic memory or episodic learning: the ability to take. A group uh, to, to take a whole to, to remember, for example, a whole si- a set of uh, set of features of a whole situation in, an er- in, in 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 at an earlier stage in the organism's life, um, and to then to then to then con- to then uh, judge and not judge—that's the wrong word—to then um, uh, shape. Behavior toward the world on the basis of that memory of a whole episode from earlier in life. This is a complex kind of memory. And, and, um, uh, but now we've, we've gotten ahead of ourselves because we haven't talked about the kinds of signs that, that might be involved here. Um, uh, but the crucial kind of sign of, of the sort, different sorts of signs that Peirce uh, described, the crucial sorts of signs for me uh, are indexes or indices, as they're sometimes called the index. Uh, in, in semiotic theory, when it's made plural, it often is made plural as indexes. So I will, I will refer to indexes. An index is a word that it, it is a kind of sign that, he, that points towards something else. It indicates it it, it. it points towards it, which is to say an index is by nature a sign that creates a context. It creates a circumstance around it. It creates, it, in, it, is, it is involved in an episode. So without any kind of ability to experience episodes, to memorize them, to, to re, not memorize, but to remember them on the one hand, to learn them and to learn from them and to shape, uh, shape behavior on the basis of episodes, without any sort of capacity to do that, um, shaping, uh, uh, forming an index, which itself creates such a context would be very, very hard to do, it seems to me. So anyway, this is, this is kind of a, a, a very brief introduction to the kinds of advanced neural capacities um, that I think some animals have and many other animals and all other organisms do not have um, uh, and making some sort of border between a, semiotic, a realm of semiotic information and the realm of complex non-semiotic information. That we've yeah. talked about already.
1: Yeah, no, and that and that's and that is an important distinction uh, because even as you're making this distinction between um, without again without like focusing on like defining the boundary and like a, in you know finding that missing link approach between inform in, informative versus meaningful um, uh, covariance, or not now informative causal covariance versus meaningful uh, expression. Um, there's also something of, and we'll, we'll get we'll get to this a little bit later as well. Um, as you know, there's something of increasing complexity in the types of signs, in the types of ways in which uh, organisms use that episodic memory. In like so, within the side of within within you know the realm of meaning, there's indices, symbols. Um, and, uh, or no, sorry, indices, icons, and symbols in kind of increasing complexity. Um, it, it, so even within there, there are still important distinctions to be made between um, not, not, not just the, the types of signs that we make as, as, as humans, because we, we, we engage with all three of those types of signs, but there is something of increasing complexity and like a further narrowing in of the particularities of how um, meaning-making animals um, engage with the world and right exactly exactly interview. and you know I mean
0: there are two ways the the three the, the famous tri- uh, triad of of sign types that that Perth had many ways of categorizing signs but the most famous of of, of these um, uh, distinguished three different kinds of signs uh, the icon which is a sign uh, uh, that bears a, a likeness to its to its object. You know, think of the deer crossing sign on a highway. The deer leaping is an icon for the deer that might leap in front of your car. Um, uh, an icon, an index, which I've already defined as as something that indicates something else, kind of in a in a pointing in a pointing relationship with it. That kind of is a part of the context of something else, usually contiguous with it or close to it or something. That's the second kind. It's, an index, by the way, as, as you might hear, I, an index is hard to define. And, and it is the richest and most varied kind of sign in some ways in, uh, that Peirce described. Um, and it, and there are reasons for that, I think. Um, uh, they have to do with the fact that, that, uh, that all of my non-human semiotic animals all of them are engaged in making indexes and doing it, doing doing that in countless different ways. None of them, I believe, are engaged, at least in, the, in their natural uh, habitat, are engaged in making symbols, which I'll come to. And I think also none of them are engaged in making icons, which is interesting because the icon is in some ways a more basic sign than the index, but we'll come back to that. The third type of sign is the symbol. And the symbol is often thought of as a sign that is defined by its arbitrariness in relation to its object, which is to say the word tree is arbitrary and referring to that thing standing outside of my window. Um, But arbitrariness is not the crucial aspect of symbols. The crucial aspect of symbols, as people like Terence Deacon, uh, Paul Koppelman, uh, neo Persians of all sorts have realized, the crucial aspect of uh, of symbols um, has to do with the fact that symbols gain their meaning by standing in by sitting in the middle of a system of other symbols, they gain their meaning by their relation to the symbols around them, um, or at least partly they gain part of their meaning by that relation. So that um, the, the 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 best example of symbols and the 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 clearest and the one that is right in front of us all the time is human language. Um, uh, uh, you know, a word, a, a word, a, a word. A, a word uh, one category of word gains its its meaning from another category of word. An adjective defines a, defines a, a noun. An, an adverb defines a verb or another adverb or an adjective. Um, uh, a, more, most basically, uh, a verb somehow predicates and and operates on. Uh, an argument, as it is sometimes called a noun, right? That that notion, that noun verb predication is absolutely fundamental to all human language. But in each of these cases, one word is enabling the meaningfulness of, a, of another word, right? Um, that's crucial uh, for the symbol, right? That's not crucial for the index. An index, a pointing index can point without standing in a com- complex relationship to other indexes. Uh, But a symbol cannot mean fully without standing in a relationship to other symbols. An icon can mean something without standing in a relation to other icons. Now, we'll have to qualify that in a moment if we talk about Hyperindexicality. I, I think. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, so the symbol. Symbol. Then you know, if, if we think of the animals that I'm trying to describe, the non-human animals. I, I should always say non-human animals, but I, we leave that off just for shorthand. The, the 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 non-human animals I'm trying to describe that are semiotic are every one of them. Creating indexes of more or less rich uh, of of greater or lesser richness in in their combination with the in their role in their in their in their life ways these animals And, um, uh, uh, and I think that icons the way we think of icons there's something that is uniquely human about what you know I give the example in the book if if you know when a Paleolithic human was painting a mammoth on the wall. That was an icon for the mammoth that might be encountered out in the world. When a Paleolithic human was out and heard the trumpeting of an icon of of a mammoth, of a live mammoth somewhere over the hill, that was an index for the the mammoth, right? Um, If the Paleolithic human was recent enough so that that Paleolithic human was using modern language Modern human language, um, and and there was a word that referred to this elephant-like creature that might be over the hill or might be painted on the cave wall. That was a symbol for the mammoth. But what's interesting about the icon is that is that to paint it on a cave wall refi- requires some sort of abstraction from the thing itself, from the, from the from the encounter with the mammoth itself, and that it seems to me is a kind of abstraction that might well be unique to humans and our ancestors, humans in the world today and some of our ancestors. Um, in which case then it would be not only the symbol that is a uniquely human kind of symbol in today, a uniquely human kind of sign in today's world. It would be the icon also that is a uniquely human kind of sign. Only the index extends and it extends very widely far beyond human animals to other animals.
1: Yeah, no. And that's, uh, even to like pull out the, uh, the example you just gave of like the deer crossing sign uh there's a there's a great joke you know i grew up in rural america listening to you know the blue collar comedy tour and there was one joke that they said i think it was jeff foxworthy and he said something to the effect of like how crazy it is that we have these signs like the the deers don't recognize those signs you know it's like here's an icon right this but there is something already kind of stylized about it that is particular to our way of engaging with the world you know so the the, the abstraction of the silhouette of a deer not necessarily something that deer's look at that and go oh, damn i look good that's me i can cross here you know like that's not the process that goes on with the, in, in the deer's brain right oh no, exactly uh, exactly and 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 uh, um
0: uh you know the question of where there are animals in the world that might make such iconic uh, uh, iconic connections. Uh, there may be some non-human animals that make such iconic connections. It's hard to tell. Uh, and there's a lot of a lot of experimentation with animals and what they what they do in terms of signs. Um, uh, but um, so we're talking about the possibility of non-human animals iconically recognizing something here would be a case where we could we could have disagreements about whether it's happening or not a dog watching a tv show right does the dog does the dog recognize what does the dog recognize on that tv screen right uh, it is a very very good question that a lot of people have have wondered about i'm not going to even suggest that i have any answers for that uh, but what i would suggest is that dogs and long domesticated animals are special cases, very interesting special cases, in fact. And, and uh, you know, dogs have been domesticating humans for 15 or 20,000 years, while humans have been domesticating dogs. That relationship is a very, very interesting relationship that has made dogs in their capacities extremely different from wolves, their ancestors. Um, they do things that wolves can't do, uh, all kinds of things that wolves can't do. And that's very, very interesting to think about how quickly that came about. And some of those things are semiotic things is all I was saying in, in my example. No, absolutely. Of
1: <laughs> yeah, no. And it's, you know, it just to like tie it into like the, uh, another point that's come up a number of times it's there's in the uh, co-domestication of these two things. We, you know, Deleuze and Guattari might call it an a parallel evolution where there's some kind of, sorry, they're, they're, they're painting outside and grinding on the side of my house. I hope you can't hear that causal covariance going or that index of work uh, going on outside. Oh, darn. Um, but the... It sounds a little bit like a mammoth, actually. Uh, but yeah, no. there's so there's there's this there's a co-evolution going on where they're, both sides are expressing their openness and co-constructing without completely one overpowering the other. There's this kind of like a... I don't know. There's openness on both sides to the system, right? And in how, as you kind of phrased it as... Dogs have domesticated humans just as humans have domesticated dogs. You know, there's this kind of a co-evolution. So when I can shut up so we don't have to hear this, um, can you tell us a little bit about the birds and the bees? <laughs> well, um, th-
0: these are, uh, uh, yes, I can. Uh, uh, the, the 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 general the, the general argument uh, now again, this is argument these are two different arguments that are based on uh, a, a whole lot of research that is out there on songbirds, what their what bird song is, how it is produced, how it is learned, how it is taught, what it signifies for, for the birds that are involved in transactions of, of, uh, uh, through bird song. Um, this is very very rich stuff. My argument is that what this stuff adds up to is that birds are songbirds are making interpretants in order to in 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 order to identify uh, the songs that they hear with certain kinds of objects or certain kinds of behaviors or certain kinds of episodic circumstances in which their lives are being are being uh, are being played out, um, and they behave according to that kind of making of interpretants, which is to say, songbirds are semiotic animals making. Signs out of these songs, creating signs in order to communicate, in other words. Um, the honeybee. Uh, example um, honeybees as as anybody who has thought about them at all knows, uh, uh, and we should all be thinking about them because we 're losing them and something like a third of the foodstuffs of 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 homo sapiens on earth today are related to the pollinating activity, especially of honeybees, and we cannot lose this species for any number of reasons, especially uh, 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 including our own our own our own healthy and thriving survival, but in any case, honeybees. Uh, They have these immensely complex social relationships in in their hive that extend beyond the hive to the foraging for nectar, pollen, and so on that they get from flowers and uh, flowering plants. And... um, these immense complexities. The more we, uh, the, back in the 20th century, at a certain point in the middle of the 20th century, um, uh, Carl von Frisch, a, a, a bio, a, a, an entomologist and biologist, um, uh, uh, he actually won a Nobel Prize for this work. He 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 defines something that he called the waggle dance of the of, of bees. They come back to the hive and they make all kinds of motions um, that that signify, according to von Frisch, they signified um, the productivity of the flower they had just come from, the the direction to the flower they had come from, and even the distance from the hive of that flower. Now, he called this the Tanzsprache, that is to say, the dance language. He called it a language, and he thought of it as a symbolic communication of one bee to another. Well, that notion of symbolic communication, between symbols, right, between, between one bee and another, that notion of symbolic communication has lingered on and on and on. At the same time, however, a whole realm of uh, a wealth of, of, of scientific uh, research on honeybees has shown more and more clearly that all of those things that we humans were interpreting as symbolic communication have to do with... Um, Uh, Sorry about that. Um, uh, My phone ringing. Um, And and it might ring again, I'm afraid, but I'm going to turn off my phone if I can. Wait a second. I'm turning it off. Yes. Okay. But what what. um, Hold on. Hold on. I'm declining the phone call. We're trying. This is this this is my son, whom I would love to talk to, but I'll get to him after after we're done. <laughs> um, uh, so, let's see. I was talking about i talking about honeybees. All, so this this whole notion of symbolic communication among honeybees came up, but the new research is suggesting more and more clearly that we can explain all of these complexities of behavior through direct chemical stimulation of pheromones, chemical stimulation of fragrances from the flowers, chemical stimulations of various sorts, and then pile that on top of complex feedback cycles of economies of honey stored or not stored in the hive, numbers of larvae that need to be taken care of and fed or not in the hive, and so on and so forth. A complex balance, a complex economy. Again, immense complexity, but all of it causal complexity with no interpretants being formed, no signs being formed. So this is the the argument, again, places honeybees on the non-semiotic side of immense biotic complexity. Songbirds, of course, they have that immense biotic complexity because it's the foundation of all life. But on top of it, they are creating signs with their songs as well. So there are two different sides of the border. Anyway, that's what that exact—that's what these 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 uh, sections of the book are about. Um, uh, I think it's hard for people to take on. One of the things that I've tried to do in the book, it's hard for people to take on the degree of complexity of animal behaviors that are out there in the world. And indeed, organismal behaviors, trees, plants, microbes, and so on and so forth, everything, all kinds of life, the the degree of behavioral complexity, the complexity of the relationship of organisms to their environment. It's hard for us to take that on in all cases without wanting somehow to locate meaningfulness in the middle of it. my one of the fundamental things I'm trying to 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 describe here is, on the one hand, is what are the conditions under which signs are made in the world, and on the other hand, think about this immense, rich biotic complexity that doesn't need signs. Think about it in a way that doesn't inha- that doesn't kind of load onto it all of this human inevitable making of signs. We can't help ourselves when it comes to making
1: signs. We do it all the time, right? <laughs> Yeah, no, and and it's like kind of like what I said earlier. It's like even even when the like the impulse to extend this meaning is is well intentioned, and it's like you know, but there's something about it that kind of reinscribes you know anthropocentrism in that in that process of kind of going like I know that I know damn well that I'm a very complex creature, and me and my friends we're all very complex creatures. I'm seeing complexity in the world, therefore. I'm having, you know, it's this complexity that extends beyond my ability to conceptualize much like the complexity of the human mind and language. And like, there's something of that, like it's it's something that people jump to and, and, but it carries with it a lot of baggage that you're trying to like help detangle the, and it was especially in the honeybee chapter that this came out to me of the, the immense complexity. And, but like, and, but also the impulse to want to, in trying to like come up against that immense complexity that is so hard to conceptualize, like the impulse, just say like, wow, that's meaningful. Like they're exchanging, it's that impulse of like wanting to bestow and appreciate their complexity, but not having to reinscribe. just being like, Oh yeah, they're just like us because we're the most complex. It it is like the period. Yeah. Right exactly
0: so so you know the so on the one hand the two impulses here that i'm working against in some ways they're impulses that are deeply human impulses one is the impulse to see ourselves as so special that there could be no other organisms that could be complex in anything like the degree that we are complex that would be what i call humanist parochialism right and and that would be the, the that would be the the, the the side that tends to arrogate to humans only to humans, only meaning making in the world. And then on the other side, there is the impulse to say, wow, look at all this complexity and to assign to the complexity the same kinds of meaningfulness that we assign to our own complexity when we're interacting with each other, right? And that would be then what I talk, talk of as semantic universalism, that is to say, finding meaning everywhere, all the way down to that DNA and RNA molecule bond, right? All the way down to there is where people will trace these things. Um, and I think both of them, both of them simply obscure very meaningful meaningful that's the wrong word do we use they obscure very important differences in the world and and to to understand our relationship out into the world to open humans out into the world is absolutely it's absolutely incumbent on us at this point in the anthropocene and so on to stop destroying coral reefs to, to kind of understand some sort of empathetic relationship as well as a relationship of thriving and, and precariousness and precarity that that we are in with coral reefs on the one hand. At the same time, as we don't turn coral reefs into something human-like, but we understand them as decidedly different
1: from us. That this is one of the the, the dichotomy that I am trying to work with in this book, right? No, and this is something that uh, it's been a while since I've since I've read this article. I think it was your uh, thing on posthumanism, um, and like this, this, this it's a similar type. And I know you are teaching the posthumanism graduate seminar right now, so this might be uh, apropos. But it's it's the the need to, to appreciate, like it's the need to extend beyond the realm of humans to appreciate the rest that is out there. Right. While still simultaneously respecting the otherness of the things that are out there, you know, like in saying like, Oh, we're all one, you lose all distinctiveness and all ability to like engage with the world. And, and like, so in that, in that uh, I think it was in the Oxford handbook of music and philosophy um, and on post-humanism. Like, I think you, you, you is it, do you refer to it as like parrot instead of post-humanism as like para-humanism as kind of a, yeah, right. It's a respect of, it's a, it's a, I don't know, it's a, it's a, it's a keeping of that distance that the otherness of the world and a respect on, the interactions that uh, that pass between these two, right. these two sides. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: I mean, the, you know, to to open ourselves out to the world um, is not to make the world in our image. Is the point? Um, and, and 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 to make the world in our image is a mistake that that humans have made for thousands of years. It seems to me, and look where it has gotten us in terms of our relationship to the rest of the world. Um, yeah, but um, I, you know, you know, Nathan. I, this has been a tremendous pleasure. Um, uh, but I think that we're in an hour and seven minutes. Nobody's going to listen
1: this, to this. I know. <laughs> interview. I know. Yeah, we, we, we've, we've, we've gone off. Um, then I, I guess I'll just, just really briefly just to kind of wrap up. There is one more section of your book that we haven't touched on. Um, and just to like give a, a brief little, you know, taste for the listeners. Um, especially in relation to the bees to jump off in the bees, you talked about their sociality. They have a very complex, uh, uh, their, the feedback mechanisms that allow the social interactions, the beehive to exist without there being meaning is, is a nice preface to this kind of like nested, uh, hierarchy that you put in of, uh, in, in the, in the realm of, you know, how animals operate. We have sociality where they interact with one another, um semiosis within that which is where you know hyperindexicality in particular the type of indexicality of um that we've seen uh, in in birds for instance within that realm we get culture um is that is that where you talk about tools well that's a separate a separate section but tools
0: tools are are yes are are related
1: to yeah, right? yeah, and then yeah. it's in the center of that. So even in the center of culture, an even smaller bit is the type of symbolism, uh, symbol making language that we've d- discussed. So
0: let, let me let me just you know the last portion of the book takes on some broader questions about about this this model, and and one of the sections of that is has to do with with um, questions about culture and semiosis. Um, Another is questions about technology and the semiosis. But just to stick with the culture uh, section, um, we talked earlier about what a definition of culture might be. And there's a very common... There are many out there, of course. But if you look to anthropological definitions, they almost all refer to symbolism, symbolic something or other. And it, it happens again and again and again. Um, uh, so that would put it in a very small realm of Persian sign-making, it seems to me, too small a realm. Um, here's a broader definition that is well known by uh, on the, and and used by a lot of biologists and evolutionary biologists who want to think about culture in broader ways and and even some anthropologists as well think of culture as the uh, the situation in which an animal can learn something in its lifetime that it Passes on through some mode of pedagogy. Passes on to its uh, to its uh, its followers. It's it, to the to the next generation. An intergenerational archive of materials of behavior somehow or modes of behavior that can be passed on. It might be a cu- cumulative archive of behaviors, or it might not be. Um, it might be a very thin uh, a set of behaviors that get passed on, but they are learned during a lifetime and then passed along to the next generation. Um, if that's the mode of culture, um, then, then a number of things follow. But one of the things that follows is that uh, not all, first of all, animal sociality is a huge realm that most of which, in my view, is is causal information, not meaningful information at all. So animal sociality would include those honeybees, for example, hugely complex sociality in, in, in the hive, but without signs. Then you get to the realm of semiosis. Um, but within that, not all animals that are semiotic animals are, are in fact, learning things in their lifetimes to pass on to their their, their progeny. Uh, which is to say that not all semiotic animals are also. Cultural animals. So, culture is then a smaller realm within the semiotic realm. And then, finally, within that, not, well, I would say then, not within the cultural realm, not all cultural animals. If there are cultural animals aside from humans, they're not indulging in symbolism, they're indulging in indexicality and I think there are many cultural animals in the way I've described it beyond humans, but they're they're engaging in indexical cultures, not in symbolic cultures. Uh, So symbolism then is a smaller realm within the cultural realm. And it is a realm that uh, it is a a kind of culture, symbolic culture that probably in the world today, only humans um, uh, uh, produce. But that doesn't mean that only humans produce culture. That's what old anthropology would have told us and tended to tell us. Uh, instead, we need to understand indexical cultures on the part of non-human animals. Many non-human animals, whales, songbirds. Again, um, uh, uh, there are a number of different kinds of uh, some of the uh, some of the great apes. Uh, some monkeys, indeed, not only apes but monkeys, uh, seem to be cultural animals in this way. Certainly, uh, chimps and bonobos and gorillas and and certain kind of humpback whales, sperm. Whales, many many songbirds, and so on. These are cultural animals, but indexical cultural animals, not symbolic. Anyway, okay. <laughs> uh,
1: so I guess to you close, Nathan, if you if you get me started on any of this, I go <laughs> I go too long. I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, it's fine. There's no there's no hard time li- limit on these. And I think uh, I think to close, then I'll, I'll ask you one question, which ties us back to. That that fateful uh, meeting about Willem Flusser when we started talking about sci-fi, and you recommended to me among a number of books, which I, I, I've, I've read since then, one of them was um, uh uh Embassy Town. Embassy I'm, Town. Whoa! I'm just yeah, curious. yeah. Uh, it, it strikes me now because I remember reading your text and thinking about this book again because I read it on your recommendation, and there is this. I, and at first, I was I was thinking. Are the indigenous inhabitants of that world outside of the embassy town itself? Are they meaningless creatures that, in the end of the book, enter into meaning? But I don't think that's quite right, especially in no, this. I don't uh, think that's quite right. No, I don't think that's yeah. quite right. No, I think no. that they might lie within semiosis, within culture, even which they clearly have culture, and the transition that happens in their language making is at the end of the book the transition into symbolism. Exactly. I, think, exactly. I think that's exactly. I think that's exactly
0: right. I think you've got it right. This this is. I, I think Embassy Town. If, if anybody has listened to this all all the way to this uh, to this point in this interview, this uh, this is the payoff for the interview. Go read China Behavior's Embassy Town if you haven't. It's a great science fiction novel, and it's a great read, and it's great fun, and it also is. Struggling with the issue of different kinds of semiosis, different kinds of semiosis within language, even and and it's fascinating in this regard. So you've got you got this this co- these colonizing humans who have only a small purchase on this planet, and then the in, the indigenous uh, aliens. They aren't aliens; they're the in, they're the the indigenes who live who who live on the planet. And and there is a there is a a, a huge fundamental. Break between a, in a, a fundamental uh, disconnect, I would say, in in the ability of the humans to communicate with the indigenes, because the indigenes are 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 working with a language that is absolutely indexical, absolutely incapable of any kind of, well, any kind of lying among other things, deceit. Um, uh it It stands in a pointing relationship to the world, but in a very, very rich way um, and the book is partly about what happens when when uh, when humans begin to introduce symbolism into the midst of this indexical language uh and disasters happen when when that happens anyway it's a great book people should go read it <laughs>
1: no 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 it's funny yeah like i said i i was going in i'm like yeah oh they they must be like meaningless and then as i was reading the book i was like no they aren't meaningless they totally have meaning they have sociality they have meaning they have a culture they have a they have the repertoire of uh what, what are they metaphors um, like the people who embody, you know, like the girl who jumps in lake or something to that effect, right? Like, and it's not symbolic. And yeah, there's, they have a, they have an archive that they pass on. So yeah, that's interesting that it's, it's that it's the, the novel in some sense talks about that exact in your, in this nested hierarchy that you put out, the transition from culture to symbolic culture, Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. By
0: the by, the way, by the way, I think I think if you read the book carefully, I've read it now twice because I like it so much. I don't I don't read science fiction books twice very often. There are some that I do, and I read multiple times. Ray Bradbury's Martian Chronicles is another one that I read multiple times. But um, uh, uh, this book, um, it is struggling to do something that is very very hard to do, um, uh, to describe a circumstance in which there is this language that is. Fundamentally different from a symbolic language. What would it be, right? Um, and I'm not sure that China Miéville quite pulls it off, but it is a noble, a noble effort to, to imagine this and to and to work with it. Anyway, it is it is you know the, the it is the science fiction novel um, among those that I know. <laughs> that is in a funny way most immersed in semiotic theory, even though there is a science novel out there called semiosis, by the way, which is a rather good.
1: Movie. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway. All right. <laughs> Well, right. It's been an absolute pleasure. I mean, I, we could just keep on oh, for, for me too. For me too, Nathan. Thank you. Th- really.
0: Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure for me. And, and, uh, and I hope some of this has been, has been somewhat clear. And in, in I've, as I've tried to. Good.
1: I'm sure. No. And I, I, uh, I look forward to seeing you on Tuesday and we can, we can talk more about sci-fi then. Indeed. (laughs) Thank you, Gary. Again, your book, uh, what what was it called? Uh, The Machines of Evolution and the Scope of Meaning from Zone Press came out in January. Um, Thank you to all of our listeners. And thank you, Gary, for spending your Saturday with me. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.